Amen. If you're still standing up, you can be seated. And I want to say again, good morning. Glad that you're worshiping with us uh, this morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. And especially if you're visiting with us this morning uh, on our live stream, uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. We'd love to have you with us in our worship services when we can be together again. So again, welcome. Um, as you know, it's, it's warming up outside. This is the first weekend in May, and summer's right around the corner. Unfortunately, because of COVID-19, so much that we normally uh, associate and love about summer has been canceled, and thinking especially about baseball. I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't know what to think about a summer without baseball, and I'm not looking forward to it. Um, and I know we're all there in, in some kind of way. Um, summertime has threatened so much that we normally love and associate about. Um, I mean, COVID has, can, has canceled so much that we normally associate with, with summertime. Uh, concerts, vacations, organized sports, things like that, even swimming. Um, if you're used to going to a neighborhood or community pool to swim, uh, that might be delayed for a little while. But... There is a way that you can swim uh, that COVID can't touch, though, and that's the more adventurous uh, swimming of uh, going to lakes and rivers, ponds and streams outside, because they're always open. Uh, you, actually, you can't close a river. You know, it's harder to do that. And it might even be beneficial for you. I don't know. I, I could be speaking out of turn here way too soon, but if I don't get the virus this year, I'm attributing it to the fact that I swam in so many dirty lakes and ponds and rivers growing up that um, I've got rock-solid immunity from whatever was in that water. Uh, who knows? Uh, who knows what was in it, but I'm stronger because of it. Um, now, now, swimming in a lake and swimming in a river, they're, they're similar in lots of ways. Won't go into all that, but there is one obvious way in which they're different. Rivers have currents and lakes don't right? Um, if you relax and just float in a lake, if you do what comes easy and naturally in a lake, then 10 minutes later, you'll probably still be roughly in the same place that you were. But if you do the same thing in a river, if you just relax and float on top of the water and do what comes easy and naturally, you will be way downstream because of the current in the river. If you're swimming in a lake with no current, um, it just comes easy and naturally to stay put in one place. Um, you don't have to try to remain standing still in one spot in a lake. But if you're swimming in a river, um, the opposite is true. The easy and natural thing to do in a river is to move. It actually takes energy and effort and exertion to stay in one spot in a current. Now, here's the point. The Christian life is more like swimming in a river than it is like swimming in a lake. Because we follow Christ as sinful people in a sinful world, that means that both outside of us and inside of us, there are currents that are always exerting pressure and force on us. And the longer that we follow Christ as broken people in a broken world, we find that we're not following Him in a lake. Um, we're not following Jesus in the calm, neutral, still waters of a lake where the, where the easy, natural thing is to stay in Him and to remember what's true and to rest in His love. More often than not, we, we, we feel that we're following Christ in a river where there is constant pressure, strong currents both outside of us and inside of us to move away, to forget what's true, 
um, to love lesser things and to seek after other kingdoms. And when we just let go and, and, and do what comes natural, when we, when we let go and, and do what comes easy, we find that we drift away, that we float with the current, and it never takes us towards wholeness or towards peace, but away from it. In our passage this morning, as we continue in Paul's letter to the Philippians, his main encouragement, his main exhortation to us in the first verse that we'll see this morning is to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Stay still. Don't float downstream. And he leads with that because he's going to address the two strongest currents um, that we're always facing in the river. Um, Two strong currents that were threatening the church at Philippi 2,000 years ago and brothers and sisters, friends, these, these two currents have not lost a single pound per square inch of, the, of their pressure and their force that they're exerting on us as followers of Christ right now. And so what are these currents, and how does the gospel, how does standing firm in the Lord help us to live faithfully in the midst of the river, in the midst of these currents uh, right now? Well, let's read and find out. This is God's Word, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come now and minister to us your word. Show us what we need to see. Give us eyes to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray that in all of this, you would be teaching us to stand firm in you. Let us know the truth and the beauty of the good news of who you are what you're doing in this world, and what you're doing in our hearts. And we pray that in this portion of your gospel, you would become um, more beautiful to us um, as, we, as we study this passage together this morning. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Paul is writing to us, and he's writing to the church at Philippi as, as followers of Christ who follow Jesus in a river, not in a lake. We follow Christ in a river with currents that are always pressing against us. And these are currents that we don't even know how strong they are until we try to stand up against them. Um, And the the two currents that Paul names here are are familiar to us. We're going to get to what they are in just a moment. But this very week and in the weeks to come, um, we've been swimming in these currents already. Um, and we will continue to swim in them. They're just a part of the territory of the Christian life. And that's why Paul begins this section by telling us in verse 1, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. Stand your ground. Don't 
move. Stay put. (laughs) This is Paul's version of what Jesus says in John 17. Abide with me. Abide in Christ. Stand Stand firm in the Lord. He's telling us, remember, you're in water that's not neutral. It's moving somewhere, and it's moving against you. And if if you relax and do what comes naturally and easily, you're going to move with it, and you'll move away from Jesus. He's reminding us that in the Christian life, spiritual growth, that spiritual movement in the right direction actually begins with staying still, actually begins with staying put in one place. Stand firm in the Lord. Abide. Stay in one place. Where? In the Lord. In the Lord. Now, that's the shorthand way of saying remember who you are. Remember all of the truth and beauty and goodness of the gospel. Remember that your identity is rooted in Christ and in everything that he's done for you and everything that he is for you. Live in light of that. Live in light of the gospel. Stand firm in the Lord. That means to live in light of the good news that Jesus has lived for you and he's died for you. And that means that he's, he now has the right to define everything about you. All of your past, your present, your future, your successes, your failures, everything about you has been redefined because you've been united to Christ, united to him. And what's true about him is now true about you. Stand firm in that. Paul says. You see, it's, it's actually not a matter of if we're going to stand firm in something in this regard. It, it's a matter of what we're going to stand on. Because brothers and sisters, friends, something is going to be ultimately valuable to you. You are going to take your heart and your hope somewhere. Something is going to define you. You, you are going to give the whole weight of your identity to something It's not a matter of if, but a matter of what. And it's a matter of if that something can hold up the whole weight of your identity. You are standing firm in something this morning. And Paul is saying, live in light of the gospel. Remember who you are. Remember what's true. Stand firm on the only rock that can actually hold up the whole weight of your identity. But notice what he says. There's a little word in this phrase. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. That little word there is pointing us forward to what follows in verses 2 through 7, where he's going to tell us, here's what standing firm in the Lord actually looks like in, in real time, in real time in the currents. So let's walk through this passage and flesh out what it means to stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to see that it involves standing firm in the river in the pathway of two currents that are always threatening our unity and our joy. Paul explains that the first of these currents is in, is in verses 2 and 3, and then the second current is in verses 4 through 7. And we could say that the first current that he describes is um, uh, we experience be- between us as Christians, and the second, con- the, the second current is what we experience within us as Christians. We could say the first current is interpersonal, conflict between us, and the second second current is interpersonal, conflict within us. So here's how we're going to walk through this. Two points. First of all, verses two through four, I mean two and three, standing firm in the Lord produces reconciliation in the midst of the conflict between us. Standing firm in the Lord produces reconciliation in the midst of conflict 
between us. Now, apparently, this congregation in Philippi was experiencing something incredibly rare and something incredibly unusual that most churches don't experience and that we probably can't relate to here at Cornerstone. Anyway, I hope you're sitting down for this. Apparently, there were people in the church in Philippi who disagreed about something, and they couldn't get along. Can, can you imagine that? Um, I read about this once, um, what, it, what it's like to disagree with somebody in the church. Um, I wonder what that feels like. I don't, I don't know if you're laughing about that or not, but um, the fact is it's, it's, that sadly this isn't unusual or rare at all in the life of the church. Relational tension and disagreements that metastasize into ugly division, personal conflict, bitterness, it's, it's all too often a present, an ever-present threat in the life of the church. Like a current in a river, it's always a force, a, a, a pressure that's, that's always there, always exerting its pressure and force on us as we live our life in the body of Christ. And here in verses 2 and 3, we have this snapshot of, of two church members, two, two sisters in Christ who have gotten sideways with each other, and they've apparently just done what comes natural and easy in the current. <laughs> and it's taken them downstream from each other and downstream from Christ. A few things to notice here. We, we don't have any of the juicy details about their disagreements. Um, this isn't a tabloid that Paul is writing, after all. We, we don't know exactly what was happening in the church, but the church obviously did. It, it wasn't news to them. Um, when the church read this for the first time, I think they all knew exactly what Paul was talking about. Because like it always does, the conflict had, had boiled over into the life of the community. People had probably started taking sides. People were probably starting to gossip. And maybe by the time that Paul's letter had arrived, you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. And something else to notice here, their disagreement is probably not theological or, or, or doctrinal. It's probably a disagreement along the lines of how to engage in ministry, about what direction the young church there in Philippi is going to take. Because these two sisters in Christ here, these two individuals, they were deeply invested in the work of the gospel there. And Paul says they were, they were fellow workers who labored side by side with him and with others in the gospel. They agreed in the gospel, but they didn't agree with each other in how to flesh out the gospel there in their community. And so it's not like they were disagreeing about the, the deity of Christ or about justification by faith. Because you just can't hear the Apostle Paul saying, okay, one of you believes in justification by faith, one of you believes in justification by works. That's not important. Y'all just find a way to get along. Um, that, Paul had no problem cutting off fellowship when it comes to the truth and the central meaning of the gospel. That was a hill that Paul would die on. But Paul is saying, this isn't a hill worth dying on, whatever it is. This wasn't a disagreement about theology. It was more a disagreement about methodology. <laughs> about how to be church, about how to fulfill the Great Commission. And they didn't agree, and everybody knew it. And they just kept floating with the current, holding on to their own preferences, doing what comes easy, what comes naturally, holding on to their own rights, to their own opinions, insisting on their own way. And Paul knows that the further that they float down the stream with the current, the more painful it's going to be for them and the more painful it's going to be for the body of Christ there. And so what does Paul do? 
he reminds them of the gospel. (laughs) He takes them back to the gospel. He reminds them who they are in Christ because the gospel is the only thing that that can produce reconciliation when we experience conflict between us. Notice how Paul, he doesn't say, I entreat you to agree on this issue. <laughs> Instead, he, he takes their eyes off of the issue and off of themselves, and he says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. He's saying this current of personal conflict that you're in right now, it's turned your priorities upside down and inside out. You've turned a major thing into the minor thing, and you've turned the minor thing into the major thing. And you need to remember who you are in the Lord. This is the only turf on, this is the main turf on which you need to come to agreement. Like I read somewhere else, Paul is saying, remember that your differences are nowhere near, nowhere near as important as the king that you serve. <laughs> the king who has united you to himself and in the process united you to each other. Only the gospel can produce this kind of reconciliation. Only the amazing free grace of Jesus can peel our hearts away from our own preferences, from our stubborn commitment of pursuing the way that we want things to go, the way that we things, the way that we think that things ought to be. True, deep, transforming gospel reconciliation is only possible when believers agree in the Lord. <laughs> when they take their eyes off of themselves and see their king, when they agree in the one who is the king who became a servant, in the one who gave up his rights and surrendered his preferences, who, who counted us more significant than himself. That's the only way that true reconciliation is possible. But notice it doesn't come easy, and it doesn't come naturally. <laughs> That's why Paul has to entreat them. He's saying this is going to feel like swimming upstream. It's not going to be easy and natural, and you're probably going to lose something. That's why he also says, sisters, you can't do this alone. (laughs) You need help. I love this part. In verse 3, Paul, he asks someone to do the very loving but the very risky thing of going where angels fear to tread, (laughs) of jumping into the middle of a conflict entering into the fray with two, brother, with two sisters to help them regain perspective, to help them, come t- to help them remember what's true. Paul says, you can't do this by yourself. You need help. You need friends. You need community. You need someone to jump in and carry the load with you and help you see what's true because you've forgotten. <laughs> now, before we leave this first point, I want you to notice just one more way that Paul takes their eyes off of the, the issue, whatever it was, and, and off of themselves and, and, and makes them look at Jesus. Um, it's, it's one of the last things that he writes to them at the end of verse 3. And he is writing to the true companion that he is urged to jump into the fray with these sisters, but I know that he's also writing with them in mind. And he says, your names are written in the book of life. He says, I'm writing to people that I am confident about where they stand with Jesus and about their, their holding on to the gospel. Your names are in the book of life. And then he leaves it there. <laughs> it's as if he's saying, sisters, I want you to look at this book that the Savior wrote in his blood at the cost of his life. It's the most expensive book in the universe because it was written at the cost of the life of the Son of God. And look, Judea. Do you see Syntyche's name printed there? (laughs) 
Syntyche, do you see Judea's name printed there? He's saying, I know you're struggling to love each other. They've hurt you. They annoy you. You're finding it hard to love, but I need you to see that the Savior and the King of this world does not find it hard to love them. He loves them at the cost of his life, and he's written their names in his book. And if Jesus was willing and eager to give up everything to save and to love this person, then you can, be, then you can give up something too in order to agree, to agree in the one that wrote your name there too. Can you show the grace that you've been given? Paul is saying. <laughs> now there's so much more that can be said here, but I just wanna ask how might this be working on your heart this morning? Where does God's grace take you? How is it, how is it motivating you and, and where, does it, where does it push you towards reconciliation? Um, because we all need to hear this. We, all, we are all standing in this current, all experiencing the pressure and the conflict and even the wounds and the scars of conflict between us. And only the gospel can produce reconciliation in the midst of this kind of conflict that we experience between us. That was our first point. Now, secondly and, and lastly, in verses 4 through 7, we see that standing, in, standing firm in the Lord produces rejoicing in the midst of conflict within us. Standing firm in the Lord produces rejoicing in the midst of conflict within us. Now, this, this, uh, this section in, in Paul, it, it's probably familiar to you. I know, you've, I know you've probably heard it and read it before, but I want to ask you an honest question. When you read verses 4 through 7, how does it strike you? Is it encouraging or is it discouraging? Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. Do you hear those words? Do you hear that as, as an invitation into something that's gloriously possible? Or do you hear Paul describing something that is hopelessly impossible? Maybe something that you can't really relate to. <laughs> always rejoicing, never anxious. It almost sounds like Paul has suddenly turned into the, the, the eternal optimist here, like he's giving us the New Testament version of that Bobby McFerrin song. Don't worry, just be happy. Everything's going to be all right. Um, I think if we're honest, it's, it's, it's possible for us to come away from Paul's words here maybe more disillusioned and discouraged than anything. <laughs> because always rejoicing, never anxious, <laughs> Maybe you would say, I, that has never really described my Christian experience, especially not the last few months. <laughs> um, the last few months, it's felt like the opposite, um, always anxious, never rejoicing. <laughs> how is a life like this, characterized by this kind of joy, how is it possible? Deep real, lasting joy that's independent of our circumstances. Is Paul inviting us into something that's gloriously possible, or is he describing something that's hopelessly impossible? How is it possible not to be washed downstream by the strong current and the, the ever-present current of internal conflict that we're always experiencing in this life? Anxiety, worry, doubt, fear, <laughs> How is it possible not only not to be washed away, but, but to rejoice in the midst of it all? Again, 
Paul's answer is the gospel, to stand firm in the Lord. Just like, just like in verses 2 and 3, he focuses our eyes on Jesus when we experience conflict between us. Here, here he, he focuses our eyes on Jesus in the same way when we experience conflict within us. And I want you to see how he does it in three ways. He points us to the presence, the posture, and the peace of Christ. We can stand firm in the Lord by resting in his presence, his posture, and his peace. First of all, look with me at the end of verse 5, where Paul writes, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Other, other translations have, the Lord is near. Now, it's possible here that Paul is, is referring to the Lord's return at the end of history. Um, it's possible that he's saying, because the Lord is coming back, don't be anxious. And that's true. And he says that in other places in Scripture. That's, that's, that is true, but, but I, I think it's likely, actually, that Paul is saying something different here. What he's saying is that the Lord is, is near, meaning the Lord is with you now. He's not distant. He's not far off and detached from your life and your cares and what makes you anxious and your sorrows and your questions. He's closer to you than you can imagine. Paul is saying because he's near, because he's present with you, don't be anxious. You can rejoice and not be anxious because Jesus is with you right here, right now. And you're never alone. And your Savior knows every square inch of your life, every square inch of your anxieties. There's something about the, about the nearness and the presence of God that just doesn't mix well with anxiety, does it? And so Paul points us to the, the presence of God in the midst of our anxieties. And secondly, he points us to the posture of God, the posture of the Lord. In verse 6, he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, we could spend a, a whole sermon on, on what Paul is saying here about the importance of prayer and, and how to pray but I simply want to draw your attention here to something that we can easily miss. And it's this astounding claim that Paul is making here that God is actually deeply interested in the things that make you anxious. He says, let your request be, be made known to God. Paul is saying that God's posture is towards his people. He's eager to hear us. He's interested. He's deeply interested in our cares and concerns. You, you don't have to do a rain dance to get God's attention. He's saying you always have God's full, undivided attention. It's so simple, but it's so beautiful. You can simply make your request known to God. <laughs> There's no bureaucratic maze that you have to get through to get to God. God's mailroom is never full. His internet never goes down. He never... He never has bad cell service or misses a call. You, you never get God's voicemail. It's, the posture of God is always leaning towards his people with his ears bent towards their cries. His children can simply just walk in and let their request be known. It's so simple, but it's so breathtakingly beautiful. And brothers and sisters, this is the best motivation that you can have to pray. 
your prayer life is not actually going to improve, or it might improve for just a little bit, but not on the long term. It's not going to improve by saying, I need to pray more, because you know you need to pray more. (laughs) But your prayer life will improve when you lean into the presence and the posture of God. When you lean into what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, that you can cast your cares and your anxieties on him because he cares for you, that his posture is towards you, and he cares about what makes you anxious. So in the midst of the strong current of internal anxiety, of of internal conflict, this sometimes overwhelming current of fear and worry that we experience, Paul says, Stand firm in the Lord by resting in his presence, resting in his posture, and thirdly, by resting in his peace. Paul writes, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now listen, as Paul is writing these very words, he he knows what it's like to be under guard, to be guarded. He's writing this letter from a prison cell uh, with a Roman prisoner standing guard over him right there, maybe chained to him. He's got, he's got no personal space whatsoever. And he thinks of that and he says, when you remember the presence and the posture of God towards you in the midst of your, in the midst of your anxiety, when you can give your anxiety to God, he gives you something in return. And it's not a fair trade at all. <laughs> He says, you give to to the Lord your cares and anxieties. Let your requests be known to him, and he gives you something in return. The very peace of God, the shalom, the wholeness of God. We can give God our worry, our turmoil, our distress, and he gives us in return the calm, quiet promises of his love. He says, the peace of God... (laughs) will guard you. It won't give you any personal space in the midst of the current of your your stress and anxiety and what is eating you up. He says the peace of God will keep you under constant surveillance and won't let the current sweep you away, won't let you take you downstream when you stand firm in Him. So Paul says, as you rest in His presence, as you rest in His posture, that the peace of God in the midst of all of this will guard your heart. You can rejoice because of this, Paul says. You can rejoice. There is joy available to you. Standing firm in the Lord produces joy and rejoicing in the midst of conflict within us. And as we close, this, this joy, this rejoicing, it's, it's so much more than just happiness. Happiness is determined by our circumstances, but Paul here is saying that there is a joy, a rejoicing that's available to you that is anchored in something outside and above of your circumstances. There's a beautiful scene that I think describes this really well at the end of The Return of the King, um, J.R. Tolkien's um, last book in the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. And Uh, It's a scene towards the end of The Return of the King when Frodo and Sam, the two hobbits, are making their way through Mordor, through the land of shadow, towards towards the mountain of fire to to end their journey one way or another to destroy the ring. And they're tired, they're hungry, they're anxious, they're worried, and they're ready to give up. (laughs) And it's at that point that, that Tolkien writes this. Sam struggled with his own weariness 
And he took Frodo's hand, and there they sat silent until the deep night fell. And then at last, to keep himself awake, Sam crawled from his hiding place and looked out. Far above in the west, the night sky was dim and pale. And there, above the dark of the high mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of that forsaken land, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Brothers and sisters, there is light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadows of this life, the shadows of your anxieties and the internal conflict that we experience. There is light and high beauty that, it, that the darkness can't touch, that the strong currents of conflict outside of us and inside of us can't reach. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a king of light and high beauty that has come down into the river, into the currents with us, who invites us to stand with him, who stands with us in the midst of it. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that there is a king of light and high beauty that is rejoicing in you right now. And because of that, you can rejoice always. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, let us see you. Give us the grace to continue to stand firm in you in the next hour, in the next day, in the next month, taking our daily bread of sustenance from you. Let us keep our eyes on you. Um, let us see your beauty. Um, let us, Lord, fall ever more deeply in love with you as we stand firm in you and find that you are a Savior who never fails. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.